Would you take out your copy of God's Word and make your way over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning and this Advent season as we celebrate the Advent of Christ or the the coming of Christ. Over the next four weeks we're going to seek to prepare our hearts for this coming by looking at aspects of our glorious Christ. In fact, the the title of our series is All Hail the Glorious Christ. The first song that we sang this morning yeah, capped off our our new series. We're 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 looking at Christ over these 4 weeks to see the solid reasons why we have for real advent joy. This isn't just happiness in families gathering or about gifts or other things though if those things happen that's that's great that's not the substance though of our joy in the season of advent and over the next four weeks as we just drop into different places in scripture what we want to do our aim as a pastoral team is to do this is to take the spotlight and shine it brightly on Jesus Christ our glorious savior he is the one that we celebrate this season, and so we're seeking to do that over these four weeks that we have together. I mean, isn't it beautiful being here this morning, too, the display of all these things? It just reminds us of the grace that God has poured out to us and the overflow of his son, Jesus. So let me begin this morning by simply asking you a question. The question is, how is your Christmas list coming along. And by Christmas list, I'm thinking of, I don't know, like getting a tree and putting up lights and preparing cookies and going to parties and getting your Cyber Monday gifts bought. Hopefully you got them all done. Among a host of many other things. What, how's your list coming along that needs to be ticked off until you get to December 25th? See, some of us this morning arrive um, already a bit tired uh, already a bit ready for December 25th to be here. We, we can enjoy the process. And these are good things. Again, the festivities, the enjoyment of the celebration. Those are gifts from God. However, those gifts from God can actually turn into hindrances if we allow them to keep us from worshiping Christ. If we allow them to shield us from treasuring Christ. If we allow them, like Chris said a few moments ago, uh, to, to cause us simply to drive by Christmas and kind of give a wave as we drive on by in our busyness. And this series, God's Word, is designed this morning to slow us down and help us to see and savor Jesus Christ this morning. So we're reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Um, you may recall that Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers who are meeting together as a church in the city of Ephesus. This letter is written uh, for one purpose. The purpose was to lift their eyes up, lift the gaze of the church up and out to the God who saved them, to the God who act in all of history to redeem them. And so chapter 2, the first 10 verses, are, are a glorious passage. And honestly, um, I wrote, 
you're going to get nervous. I wrote 20 pages and that didn't scratch the surface and I won't, won't even come close to half of those. But here's the thing. We could be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and I'm not joking, for a year and not really do it justice. So pray for me this morning as I try to represent the truth that's here because I need God's help. But let's read and let's pray and ask God to help us as we consider our glorious Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word. And we now submit our hearts to this Word. We pray that as we think about over the next minutes together, we think about and consider and are addressed through Your Word that we would have humble hearts. Hearts that are ready to receive the truth in this passage and apply the truth in this passage. Lord, please help us to that end. We pray together in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to go out after you have lunch today, if you were to go out into the community, whether at the mall or Walmart or wherever, go into our community and to ask 10 people, what does Christ have to do with Christmas? What kind of responses do you think you would get? I, I honestly think that many wouldn't have a whole lot to say because I think our culture has become and is becoming Uh, continually more illiterate as it relates to what Christmas is all about and certainly the Bible. But you may find some people that would say things like this. He he came to teach us to love our neighbor. Um, He came to model peace. Uh, He taught us how to give, how to be generous. And those things 
those things are true, that loving our neighbor and being a peacemaker and being generous, they are, they're all important, but as important as they are, they're not why Christ came to the earth. They're not why Christ is the center of Christmas. And in this beautiful, majestic passage that we just read by the Apostle Paul, he is, he is setting the table for us. So you may have guests come over to your house or you may go to somebody's house this holiday season and, and you may sit down at a table that is set and it's beautiful. Paul sets the table for us through this passage so that we can feast on the glory of God. We can feast on all that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And there's basically two main thoughts that we want to consider this morning. Verses 1 to 3, uh, Paul lays out our condition, our lost condition before Christ. And then in verses 4 to 10, he, he also lays out the great mercy and the great kindness of our Lord to redeem people. If I were to summarize the, uh, the passage in one sentence, I would say this. Jesus Christ came to earth to give life to lifeless people. Jesus Christ came to earth to give life to lifeless people. In other words, he came to earth to make dead people alive. And he does it by his resurrection power. And we're going to see that. And I want to encourage you in one specific way. As we walk through verses 1 through 3, as we talk about the human condition, you might be tempted at some point to say, this is a bit of a downer. Like, wow, all this talk about sin... Uh, and, and if that temptation rises in your heart, like, hey, Jeremy, come on, the, the, the stage is beautiful, we're singing Christmas carols, this is a happy time, I say to you, that's exactly right. Because in order to really rejoice in the great news of the advent of Jesus Christ, we first have to understand why it is that he needed to come. We have to really understand the bad news before we can rejoice in the good news, and that's exactly that's exactly why Paul writes in this way, writes to this, this dear church that he loved so much. So he begins by considering our great need in verses 1 through 3. Look at how he starts. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul Paul doesn't pull any punches here in beginning to describe our hopeless state before the Lord. He's not, by the way, he's not speaking to a certain uh, evil part of the, you know, Ephesus here. He's, he's talking about the human condition of all of us. We were dead in our sin. He, he's not saying, hey, you were, you were comatose in your sin. You were kind of limping along in your sin. Uh, he's not saying you were impaired by your sin. He says you were dead in your sin. You were lifeless. There was no spiritual life. There was no pulse in you and I for God prior to coming to him. That's what dead means. We were six feet under, figuratively speaking. We weren't looking for God. It's not like we were looking for him and we just hadn't found him yet. No, we weren't looking for God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. That's, 
That's an interesting word. The word trespass carries with it the sense that there are boundaries that God has set and we've gone beyond them. Kind of like, you know, if someone owns a home and each home has boundaries and if someone doesn't want you on their property, they put a sign in the yard that reads, no trespassing. Because there are boundaries. It's a picture, if you will, of what happened in the garden. The Garden of Eden. God created the Garden of Eden. He created all the world. He set Adam and Eve after He created them. He set them in the garden. And what was the garden like? The garden was a place of bounty. I'm sure it was a place of beauty. It was a place that was resplendent with the joy of God. Can you just imagine the picture of Eden um, just beauty and lush and overflowing and rivers and, and just this, this wonderful place. But God, in His wisdom, set boundaries for Adam and Eve. He said, you know, you have all of this. I've created this for you. Have dominion over it. Enjoy it. But there is a boundary, and the boundary is this one particular tree. So, so enjoy all of this and, and don't do that. <laughs> And what do Adam and Eve do? They focus on the one and they trespass. And we in our sin have been trespassing ever since. Paul says you were dead in your sins and your trespasses before the Lord. He's describing our spiritual reality apart from Christ. Because God's standard is holiness. This sense of our sin it connotates that we have, we have missed the mark of God's standard. We've fallen below it. And God is a holy God. He's describing the spiritual reality to which we all experience. We were spiritually dead. We were re- rebellious before God. Again, we weren't looking for Him. And this indictment of being spiritually dead should not surprise us. Because we see this in other pages of Scripture. Romans 3 reminds us that the earnings, the wages of our spiritual state is death. For the wages of sin, he says there, is death. So, and you know, as we are, we're talking about our, our spiritual state apart from Christ, we have to admit at times this is, this is a little hard for us to accept, isn't it? Like, okay, I, I might be willing to concede that I was, I was really limping along in my sin, but spiritually dead? No life in me? You know, we look around at, at people in our world, in our culture, and there are pretty exciting folks around. I mean, there, there are people who have amazing talent. They have vibrant personalities. They sports figures that can do amazing things. People who are even kind and considerate. And yet apart from Christ, they are spiritually dead. Paul is declaring to us a universal reality. We have trespassed against the Lord. He goes on to describe then in particular terms what our deadness actually looks like. He he says, look, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does that mean? Following the prince of the power of the air? That's a reference to our enemy, the devil. In fact, it, it gives it connotes that the sense that there's 
the air that we breathe in this world. There, there is the sin in this world and it's, it's all around us. And he's saying that in our deadness, we were follow, followers of the fallen world around us. It was simply our nature to be a follower of sin. See, no one ever needed to teach us how to sin. I remember uh, very clearly uh, one time, I mean, who doesn't love a sweet baby, right? A sweet young little child. And and um, God blessed me with and Jules with four of them. And I remember one time that Ethan in his really young age, he was just being, parents, you know what this is like, he was just being so stubborn. And I remember having the thought, nobody had to teach him how to be stubborn. I mean, I know where he gets it from, but um, (laughs) nobody had to teach him how to be so stubborn in that moment and resistant and resilient in his iron will against his father. No one had to teach him. It came naturally. This is a picture of who we are as people. We're we're the followers of sin. In fact, he goes on in verse 3. He said, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and mind. See, one of the ways that the deadness of our sins manifests itself is that we were enslaved by our passions. In other words, we were under their sway and influence... And we couldn't get out from under their sway and influence. We were held there. What we thought was freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want it, with whomever we want. We think in our fallen thinking that that is freedom, whereas that is actually enslavement. That's what Paul is saying here. We were enslaved by our passions. We were held in their sway. We thought we were free, but in fact... We were not. And he goes on to make the final condition of our fallenness even more plain when he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's an interesting phrase, children of wrath. What, what does that phrase mean? It means that in our lost and sinful state, we were under God's judgment. We were under God's judgment. So what is God's wrath? We don't often like to hear or think about the wrath of God because we tend to think, as as people, we just tend to want to focus on God's love and God's mercy. And and all those things are true and right. He is loving. He is mercy. He is the definition of those things. But he he also has wrath. So let's talk about wrath for a moment. What is God's wrath not? Let's begin by defining it that way. God's wrath is not like the wrath of a man. God is not vindictive. He is not waiting, you know, with hands riled, ready to punish people. What what may come to mind when you think of the wrath of man might be someone who's flying off the handle or someone in a rage, like out of control, an evil kind of a fury. That's That's not God's nature at all. God's wrath is instead His settled, righteous opposition to evil. It's settled. It's not based on emotion. It's righteous. His righteousness always rules over every character of His being. So it's His settled and righteous 
opposition to evil. God, God does and will judge all sin. But it's a, it's a settled conviction of God. It's not capricious. It's not like God has moods where some, some days he just rises up in anger and likes to zap us. No, it's, it's this direct, personal, and perfect opposition to our sin. And it's right, by the way, dear friends, it's right that God is 100% opposed to every form of evil. Because, think about it this way, if God took even the slightest pleasure, the smallest, the most, the most teeny pleasure in evil, then he would cease to be good. He would cease to be good. If he didn't judge evil as it is, he would cease to be a good God. And I wouldn't want anything to do with him, nor would you. We wouldn't want a capricious God whose character could change. No, it's right that God always opposes evil. So, so dear friends, at the end of this, these three verses, Paul is definitely seeking to paint an accurate picture of our souls. He wants us to be fully aware of where we stand apart from Christ. So let me just read again uh, a summary. Prior to Christ, this is who we are. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the ways of the unbelieving world. We were enslaved to our passions. We were held under their sway. We did not have freedom. We thought we did, but in fact it was enslavement. And we were subject to the judgment of God. Paul's pulling no punches here. He wants it to be plain. And there's, again, there's a reason that Paul is making this perfectly plain. Because... He wants the people of God to be able to accurately and adequately rejoice in the grace that God poured out upon them. And he wants that for them in Ephesus, and God wants that again for us this morning. See, we were dead in our sins and unable to resurrect ourselves. So what made us alive? What made us alive was God's doing. We see that now in verse 4. Read with me there. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, the the contrast here, verses 1 to 3, they they paint a, a very dark picture, a very accurate picture, but a very dark picture of the reality of us. Then we see these two words, but God... These are the greatest two words in the history of human speech. We were totally lost, but God. We were unable to do anything spiritually, but God. We were without hope, unable to spiritually save ourselves, but God took action. God's mercy toward sinners sinners flow from His huge heart for his people. God is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So when we talk about the righteous wrath of God, at times we can have this thing rise up like, I don't like to think about the wrath of God. 
Well, the wrath of God is made perfect when we understand the richness of His mercy. The richness of His love that that He pours out upon people like you and people like me. Friends, this week as I studied this passage, I I just recognized, I saw my name in verses 1 and 2 and 3. I saw my name there. Like, that's who I am. By nature, I don't follow God. This is before coming to Christ. By my nature, I, I didn't want Him. I was darkened. And that's what allows me and enables me on, on Sunday mornings when we come together now to rejoice because God conquered every sin that I ever committed. Praise the Lord. And if you're in Christ, God conquered through His rich mercy every sin that you've ever committed through the coming, the advent of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. See, God's mercy means that He doesn't give us what we deserve, right? That's what mercy is. Mercy is holding back what someone deserves. And when I read this passage, I say, this is what, prior to Christ, this is what I deserved. I deserved judgment. I deserved to be numbered among the family of those who are called to be children of wrath. That's what I deserved. But God, in His mercy, didn't give that to me. He gave me mercy. He withheld His judgment against me and He poured it out on somebody else. This is why we celebrate Christ at Christmas. Dear friends, this is why we take time as the gathered body of church to relish and enjoy the richness of God's grace towards sinners like you and me because He has done what we could never do. He made us alive. It's not like, dear friends... I made myself somehow alive. It's not like one day, you know, I've shared with you before, I believe I was regenerated by God when I was eight years old under the preaching of a Scottish uh, evangelist at my church in Groton, Connecticut, with my mom and dad there. I believe that's when I was saved by the Lord. Was it because I was so wise and so insightful at eight years old? No, I believe God made me alive. He worked in my heart. And granted me faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. Look at how he says it. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Here's verse 5. Even when we were dead. Again, can we act when we're dead? No, we can't act when we're dead because we're dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Now, I was, I was awake at the time when I was regenerated, but I believe it was an act of God to make me alive. This is what God does. This is what Paul is saying. We were dead, and God's the one who made us alive. And when we think about the fact that God makes us alive, I, I don't know how that lands on you. But it lands on me like this. Lord, I have no idea why you would be so merciful to me. There's nothing about me that is worthy of your mercy. And it incites my heart to praise when I think that God would make me alive. 
it causes me to worship because why would God remember me? And God, why would God remember you? Did we bring something to the table that he just like, wow, I need that guy on my team? No. That's what this passage says. No. We're not bringing anything to the table. God made us alive because of his great mercy for us. Because his great love wanted us to experience his good gift of salvation. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel is responding, uh, is recording, excuse me, the words of the Lord. And, and listen to how Ezekiel, or God, through the, the pen of Ezekiel, is, is telling us how he's going to save us in the new covenant age. Just listen to this. And I will give you a new heart. I've, I've underlined God's activity here. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, let me ask you, who's doing the work in this verse? You see it, right? It's God's doing. Salvation from first to last is all of God. Salvation from first to last is an act of the sovereign grace and the sovereign mercy of our Lord. Do you see it? I'm the one that's going to put in your heart a new heart. I'm the one that's going to take out that stony heart. And I'm the one that's going to put in a heart of flesh that will cause you then to want to follow me and obey my commands. So who's the one working in our salvation? It is God, dear friends. And God worked through Jesus Christ in his coming into this world as a babe at that manger to, to live a perfect life, to never sin once. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine never sinning? What, like, I, I, I have no idea what it's like to live one day, one hour without sin. I, I've, never, I've never had one. Maybe when I'm sleeping, I guess. But that's it. If I'm awake, there's temptation all around. And I think you're with me. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, never sinned once. But yet, he substituted himself on that cross for me so that though I was dead in my trespasses and sins, he could raise me to life and raise everyone who will ever turn to him in faith. He raises us to life for his great glory and for our good. Look at why he does this. Look at verse 7. We're just barely skimming the top. Why does God do this? Why does he resurrect people to eternal life? Verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I want to think about the immeasurable riches of his grace for a moment. Think about this. Everything that we do is based on the standard of measurement. Um, let me give some examples. Everything that we do. Um, in school, we take tests. Um, so that we can get a grade. That's a standard of measurement of what we know. When we fill up at the pump, we pay according to a standard of measurement how many gallons we received. Our, our taxes. Here's a fun one. You, know, you make certain amount of money. Okay, here's what you need to pay in. It's a standard of measurement that we're all 
uh, we all have to give to. Even the vastness, think about this, the vastness of the oceans of the globe. Even the vastness of the oceans of the globe, as deep and as wide as the oceans are, there are algorithms now to quantify the gallons of water in the great oceans of the world. Everything in our lives is quantifiable. Everything is measured. There is one thing, however, that is unable to be measured. And it's God's grace. We cannot measure it. This is what Paul is driving at here by by painting the accurate picture of who we were prior to Christ. We were dead. God had to raise us up. It's an act of his grace. And he's now saying, why did he do this? To show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness in Christ Jesus. So let's say it this way. If we took the rest of our earthly lives and all we did was to meditate on the, the riches of God's grace, we could not, we could not plumb its depths. In fact, we will not plumb its depths in all of eternity in heaven. We will never plumb the line, the bottom of the depths of the riches of His grace. Now I gotta tell you, that encourages my soul. You know, because I, I'm, I'm so grateful for the grace of God in my life. I'm sure you're grateful for the, the grace of God in your life. And, and what that means is you haven't yet used up your quota. In fact, it's not possible that you could ever exhaust the riches of the grace of God. You could never. So, dear friend who's in a battle... A struggle perhaps with sin. You're fighting. You're, you're taking the word of God into your heart. You're, you're battling away. When you fail, you will never exhaust the riches of His grace. Amen? Never. There won't be a day upon which you fail and you come to God and He says to you, All right, your quota is up. I have no more grace for you. You've come back a thousand times. I'm sick and tired of hearing you. You're done. It won't happen. Because there is an immeasurable amount of riches to His grace. And dear friends, for all eternity, we will be enjoying and discovering a fresh I don't exactly, of course, know what heaven's going to be like, but I believe it's going to be like earth, only without sin and without error, without flaw. I think we're going to be working and have, have responsibilities and we'll be in relationship with one another. And I think there's going to be realities where we just, we just discover maybe through the beauty of the creation that's before us or through the joy of relationship that has no singe or twinge of sin and it will, will enjoy a perfect relationship with one another. We'll never sin against one another. And in all eternity, I think what we're going to experience is another depth. Oh, here's another grace of God. Here's another depth to his mercy in redeeming someone like me. Here's another way that now I see the glory of God on display. And that's what Paul, that's I think a little bit of what Paul is after here. Like, dear church, please, he's saying to them, the, there, there's an 
an inability to measure the amount of grace that God has for His people. And all eternity will be spent experiencing the grace of God. He wraps his thoughts up here in verse 10 when he says, For we now, he's, he's turned the corner. He was painting a picture of who they once were, verses 1 to 3. Verses you know, 4 to 9 are, are a picture of the glory of God in, in making us alive. And now a picture of what he has for us in our day-to-day. For we are, we are by faith in Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what that means for us today, dear friends, in in early December as we anticipate the Advent season, as we have joy in in thinking about our Lord coming into the world to redeem and rescue us from our sin, here's what this means. God has good for us to do in this world. God wants to use you and He's prepared works beforehand to do it. I say this, I hope I can say this to you and you understand what I mean. I do not say this example to, to build myself up. I just want to say how God um, enabled me to, to serve somebody yesterday and I hope it encouraged you. So, so my mom and dad are having their wall rebuilt out in front of their house and there, there are two workers, there are a father and a son, and uh, my mom and dad have been seeking to minister to them, and, and I, you know, my family as well. And I saw their truck pull in yesterday morning, um, and I didn't know that they would be working on Saturday, and I've been thinking, how can, I, um, how can I reach out to these guys? How can I encourage them? And a thought came to mind um, to make lunch for them. And so I got out my pizza dough, and I got to work, and um, around 12.30, I ran across the yard with uh, four pieces of pizza, and I said, guys, I'm banking on the fact that you like pizza, and they both rubbed their bellies like, you know we do, and so I said, well, um, just wanted to give you some, you're working hard out here, and, um, and the response was one of bafflement. They didn't understand why are you doing this? just want to share God's love in a practical way. Again, please hear me. I'm not trying to build up myself. I'm simply saying God has appointed for us good works that flow from a heart that knows who it once was dead in sin and trespasses. And now God has made alive Good works that flow from a heart that, that's now beating and pulsing. Not perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. But I just want to encourage you. You don't have to look far for the ways that God may want to use you today, tomorrow, this week. God has appointed you. If you're in the faith, if you are one who has bowed your knee to Christ, if God has made you alive and granted to you faith, then God has appointed to you um, works not that we earn something before God, simply that works that, that demonstrate the fullness of the salvation that God has granted for you. So whether it's delivering lunch to someone or to sharing with someone how you're praying for them or, or doing something or saying something that, that draws the attention of other people to the kindness of the riches of the grace of God, that's how we share the gospel. God has been so kind to me. 
when we do that, it brings God glory. And in fact, those works are ordained by God because he's prepared them in advance that we might walk in them. So, dear church, how we're going to close this first Sunday of Advent, uh, what, what do we do in light of these things? Here's, here's what we do. We rejoice in the goodness and in the mercy of God. We, we take pleasure in the fact that God, in His kindness, has reached out toward rebellious sinners and, and made them alive by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We've been, our family name has been changed. We were once part of the family known as the children of wrath. And now we're in this other family and our name is children of God. Yes, and that causes us to rejoice on this morning. It causes our hearts to soar because God has dumped into our lives the richness of the fullness of His grace. In a description of the character of the Lord in Exodus It says this, our Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the one who has done it. We couldn't make our salvation happen. God has saved us. On Friday night, my family was down in Chestnut Hill to hear a live performance of Handel's Messiah. You may be familiar with this. Uh, great and moving oratorio was written in 1741 and anything that endures from 1741 to a packed house in Chestnut Hill in 2023 I'd say there's something right about that and uh, you may know Handel's Messiah but for me the crescendo of the whole movement the whole thing is I mean I love the Hallelujah Chorus but the crescendo of the glory of God in that movement is when they start singing from Isaiah 53. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And if you know the, if you know Handel's Messiah, there's a break after that. It's, it's actually kind of a, a joyful end. You know, oh, we like sheep. There's all these trills and, and it's kind of this joyful moment. And then at the end of the verse, there's this just wonderful calm that comes over the whole choir. And it says this, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in the house on Friday night, you could hear a pin drop. And I was, it was all I could do to not shout at that moment, praise be to the Lord. But this is what we, what we celebrate this Christmas season, that the Lord, in fact, has come. See, Piper says in this book, Let me read it to you. He says, Christmas is an indictment. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. Christmas, here it is, okay. Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. It will not have its intended effect until you feel your need for a Savior desperately. Paul in his pastoral heart for the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to feel the indictment before they could enter into the full joy of the richness of God's grace. And that's what we want to do here this morning. Ephesians 2. Remember, remember, Paul says, don't forget this. Remember, 
that you were at that time prior to Christ. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Remember this, church. Don't forget, this is who we once were. We were strangers to God. We had no hope. We were without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you who once were dead in your sins, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's our peace. This is why Christ came to bring us our ultimate peace. Would you stand with me as we prepare now to sing in response to this great truth? In a moment, we're going to read. We're going to sing these words, and I just want to highlight them um, to show you how they fit so nicely with Ephesians chapter two. We'll sing the first line of this, the first uh, verse, I should say, of this song. It says, once in the wilderness of our sin, we wandered lost and without hope. Into our desert waste, God in grace came to restore and bring us home. Let the redeemed of God rise up and sing. And then we sing the chorus. And then another verse, you take the darkness and make it as light Hearts that were dead in sin, you raise to life. You take a barren place and make it a spring. Let the redeemed of God rise up and sing. This is what we're doing here. Here's the application. Let's rise up and sing the worship of our Lord. So, Father, this morning, thank you for preserving this word for us. Thank you that you give us clarity on what our hearts were like before coming to you so that now we can rejoice in the grace that you have poured out to us. And Lord, we don't forget that you also have good works for us to do, sharing the hope of the gospel with people around us. And so, Lord, may there be more voices in coming weeks that sit in these seats that rejoice in the mercy and grace of God because we've been able to share with them the hope that we enjoy in Christ. Lord, you redeem a people so that we relish the riches of your grace and you redeem a people so that we go from this place sharing of that hope that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. So we pray for grace to do it. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.